your measure of what it means to be great will shape your life. In our confused world, there are many competing visions of greatness, and we tend to buy into them so quickly. But in the part of Matthew's Gospel that we come to this morning, Jesus turns many of those visions upside down. And if you understand this, it will revolutionise your life. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you might take all distractions from us. We pray that you might address us. Where we need to hear your challenge, please enable us to hear. Where we need comfort from you, please give us that comfort. And Father, we pray that we might live as people who follow the Lord Jesus. His example, but most of all, his sacrifice for us. His including us in your family and his gift to us of your spirit. So Father, this morning, open our eyes, open our hearts and change our wills for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, will you turn with me uh, to Matthew 18? And I'd like to read uh, the first 14 verses. Matthew chapter 18. In that hour, the disciples of Jesus came, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child, he stood him in the midst of them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles themselves like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them that a giant millstone be fastened around their neck and they sink into the depths of the sea. The world suffers from things that cause people to stumble, for it is necessary for causes of stumbling to come, but woe to the man through whom such a cause of stumbling does come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to come into life lame or crippled than with two hands or two feet be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, remove it and cast it from you. It is better for you to come into life with one eye than with two eyes to be cast into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, will they not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go and seek the wanderer? And if they find it, truly I tell you, they rejoice over it more than over ninety-nine who had not wandered off. In this way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that even one of these little ones be lost. Uh, it would be very easy, and many have done it, uh, to take this passage from Matthew's Gospel and to treat it in isolation from the rest of the Gospel in which we find it. After all, it's so rich in meaning and so rich with challenge, isn't it? Greatness is not what you think it is. You can't even begin in the Kingdom of Heaven without your value system being turned upside down. What you thought was so valuable, you might spend your life chasing it. It's no value at all reputation, 
influence, power, prosperity, pleasure. Fundamental to the kingdom of heaven is abandoning any question of status or rank or recognition and humbling yourself, admitting you don't deserve anything from God. You have nothing of your own to bring as your part of the deal. And there is a danger so real and so deadly that it's worth taking the most drastic measures to avoid it. The kingdom of heaven is so good and so important and so worth being part of that anything that gets in the way of that is dispensable. Better to suffer a little loss now than a catastrophic loss then. And those who believe, who once were lost and wandering but now have been found, are of such extraordinary value to our Heavenly Father that guarding them, protecting them, ensuring not one of them is lost on the last day is far more important than petty pecking orders or prestige or anyone remembering that you were ever here. There's so much in that, isn't there? And we'll return to some of those things in a moment. But before we do, I want to draw your attention to the connection to what has come before. Our passage begins at that time, or literally in that hour. This is not weeks or even days later. It's in the hour in which the events recounted at the end of chapter 17 had unfolded. And what had just unfolded? Jesus and his disciples had arrived in Capernaum and had been that strange conversation between Jesus and Peter about paying the didrachma, the temple tax. Do you remember how that conversation ended? Jesus said to Peter in chapter 17, verse 27, in order that we might not cause them to stumble, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and all the rest. In order that we might not cause them to stumble. And Jesus is going to continue talking about stumbling and causing to stumble, causing others to stumble and stumbling yourself. And the catalyst for continuing that conversation will be this question of his disciples. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, there has been some very spectacular and deeply tragic stumbling of late, hasn't there? It's not an abstract and theoretical thing that Jesus is talking about here. People with tremendous influence, influence right across the evangelical world, have stumbled and it has been horrific to watch. Those who have planted or grown churches that have had massive impact right across the country and even across the world have stumbled and I know some of those people. I've been in the same room as some of those people. Some of those people have stayed in my home. But just as tragic, even more so, is the suffering of those who've been caused to stumble by them or who are stumbling because they have stumbled. It's not limited to one place. It's not limited to one kind of theology. It's not limited to one denomination. Jesus says here in this passage that causes of stumbling will come. Indeed, it is necessary for them to come. But you really don't want to be that cause. You really don't want to be the one who causes someone else to stumble by your failure, 
by your pride, by your self-centeredness, or by your sin. You really don't want to be an obstacle to faith or an excuse for unbelief. Yes, the world will keep throwing up stumbling blocks. The world is like that. But don't you make it like that. So I'm sure you can see from the very start how serious this is. Jesus uses the most graphic language, doesn't he? It would be better to have a huge millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea to quickly and inevitably sink to the bottom of the ocean than to be the cause of just one of these little ones who believe in me stumbling. In Capernaum, Jesus was concerned for the tax collectors in order that we might not cause one of them to stumble. Of course, some of them would stumble at the message of the kingdom drawn near. That's one thing. In, in some sense, it's inevitable. But Jesus will not let high-handed action by him or his disciples become an occasion for stumbling. He could have stood on his rights after all. Theologically, he is the one for whom the temple is made and he was not liable to the tax. He's the son of the king for whom the taxes are collected. And practically, by Jewish law and custom, a religious teacher might be given an exemption from the didrachma. If Jesus had chosen not to pay, he would have been in the right. But to do so would have drawn attention away from the message to the self-aggrandizing and self-satisfying behaviour of the messenger. It would have meant causing them to stumble. And because he knows the heart of his father, he will not do that. But then on the same day, in that very hour, the disciples front up and ask, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Great's a little that question, doesn't it? We know straight away they still haven't got it. Not yet. Perhaps they'd heard that Jesus had paid the temple tax for himself and for Peter and wondered whether there was a pecking order. After all, he paid for Peter, but there's no mention of the rest of them. But the length to which Jesus goes in answering them shows it's more than that. And Jesus needs to tackle this one head on because the pursuit of greatness and the way it will make you treat others is a major cause of stumbling. We can find all ways, all kinds of ways to justify it, of course. I don't want to be great in the eyes of the world. I don't want to have political power. I don't want a statue in the city square or in the university triangle. I just want to be a great preacher. Or I just want to be a great theologian and teacher. Or I just want to be a great ministry strategist with a string of church plants under my belt. It's all for the kingdom, of course. But did you notice the disciples were asking about greatness in the kingdom, not greatness in the world? And they were thinking about the kingdom just like other people think about the world. They were using the same basic criteria to assess value and status and rank wanting to be great, to be noticed or respected or remembered. It's a worldly way of thinking. And yet it is so enticing, so seductive, that Jesus will return to this subject in a few chapters' time 
contrasting the way the Gentiles think of greatness and what greatness really means in the kingdom. But he's not there yet. Here, he wants to warn about the danger of greatness and the value of the worthless. And so he uses a visual aid. Jesus put a child in the middle of them and said, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's important to remember, remember that this was happening in the first century and not the 21st. We tend to romanticise children, how adorable they are, how innocent they are, how trusting they are. Of course, you only have to have children of your own to have that little bubble burst. But it's a surprisingly resilient bubble. The truth is children can be proud or irritable or suspicious or selfish, just like adults. But that's not the point here. It's not what the child's like or how the child behaves that Jesus has in mind. You see, in the first century, though children might be loved and delighted in, they had no status, no rank, no social importance, no rights of their own. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians? The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. They didn't have a say. They didn't have a voice. They had no achievements they could parade. They didn't count. They were just children. And the point that Jesus was making was that greatness is not what you think it is. And if you are preoccupied with rank or status, position or title, or what people think about you, then you haven't learnt the first thing about life in the kingdom. Like this child standing there in the midst of them, who was not even given a name. We don't know the name of that child. Not given privilege, not claiming rank, not contributing anything just called and placed by Jesus in the midst of his people. You see, humility is not just a quality for the mature or the super-Christian. Humility is involved in the Christian life from the beginning. As we acknowledge that we can do nothing, it will all have to be done for us. We cannot save ourselves. We need the Saviour. It is the one who humbles themselves to take the place of a child with no claim to anything of value, genuinely bankrupt before the Saviour, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus turns greatness upside down and inside out. He is himself, after all, the one who did not count equality with God something to hold on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But in this context, it's important to challenge greatness so insistently because pursuing greatness will trip you up and it will hurt others. Now, I don't know the heart of those whose fall from high-profile ministry positions has been the preoccupation of the Christian press in the past couple of months and especially the last week but they had massive influence over individuals and organisations. They were, or so it seems, beyond criticism, unable to be challenged, 
free of accountability structures which might have tempered their view of themselves and their treatment of others. They seemed to have believed their own press to some degree. There was something special about them. And so they were able to justify, at least to themselves, their own pursuit of greatness and give it a more wholesome name. The adulation of a Christian crowd is just as intoxicating as that from any other. And when the praise comes mixed with thanksgiving to God for your ministry, it's easy to have your head turned. But no leader, no matter how successful, can afford to think of themselves as anything but like that child. How did the hymn writer put it? Nothing of my own I claim, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Humbling ourselves, acknowledging we bring nothing but are given everything. And in that, the Christian leader is like everyone else. Which takes us to the value of the worthless. The danger of pursuing greatness is that it quickly blinds us to the priorities of God. It leads us to devalue what matters most to him. It so often leads us to mistreat and even abuse what matters most to him. People become pawns in our game. They are the punters, we are the leaders. They are the collateral damage as we go out and make our mark in the world. And we need to learn that what might be treated by the world as worthless are in fact the most important things of all. You could easily fail to notice the massively countercultural thing Jesus was saying in verse 5. He is still speaking about the child at this point. He doesn't change to speaking about one of these little ones who believes in me until the next verse. But speaking of the child, remember a, a non-entity in law and social standing. Jesus dared to say, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. You need to treat this non-entity as you would treat me. Because this child is precious. It's a truly stunning thing to say. And that is true of all who have humbled themselves to become like this child, these little ones who believe in me. They need not only to be welcomed, but to be guarded. You do not want to do anything, anything, that causes one of them to stumble. If you get in the way of them progressing in the Christian life, of living out their own dependence upon the Lord Jesus, of being humble members of the kingdom of heaven, you will have put yourself in great danger because they matter that much. The kingdom matters that much. See, the stakes are very, very high indeed. How we behave amongst God's people, how we view ourselves and how we view others. You cannot afford to despise what is so valuable to God in the interests of pursuing what you think you deserve in the desire for recognition and greatness. You really, really don't want to be the one who causes others to stumble or to sin. It's not worth it and the judgment will be terrifying. Better to take, as Jesus says here, the most drastic action when you know you are vulnerable, 
Suffer the loss now because it will be far, far preferable than the loss you will suffer then if these little ones stumble because of what you do. I know of people who at this very moment are grappling with trusting God since they trusted their mentor and he has proven to be so abusive. Their confidence has been rocked and they've found it so very, very difficult to untangle how they are treated by this man and how they are loved by God. And their faith seems to hang in the balance. And that is a frightening thing. There is a terrifying exhortation in the Anglican ordination service. It goes like this. Have always, therefore, printed in your mind how great a treasure is committed to your care. For they are the sheep of Christ, whom he bought with his death and for whom he shed his blood. The church and congregation whom you must serve is his bride and his body. And if it should come about that the church or any of its members is hurt or hindered as a result of your negligence, you know the greatness of the fault and judgment that will follow. It's right up there with that warning from James, isn't it? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. You cannot pursue the welfare of God's people and your own greatness at the same time. And yet each little one who believes in me is extraordinarily precious to God. And as Jesus says, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. They're not unrepresented in heaven. Their case is pled before the Father at every moment. What some people might consider worthless, the fodder, the, the pawns on the chessboard are genuinely valuable and truly great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a very opposite of the kind of greatness the world pursues. It's amazing at the moment, to me at least, how much we sound like the world and are becoming more so all the time. Even in our modernised titles, have you thought about it? Um, executive pastor, AGM, director. It's all the more frightening how much we bought into the world's view of greatness and not remembered the words of Jesus. Well, the little parable at the end of our passage drives home the message. It's hard to think of a less strategic thing to do uh, than leave the 99 sheep on the hill and go looking for the one who wandered off. You, you might as well hang out a sign saying, free meat for the taking and you get the wool as a bonus. Shouldn't you decide, well, the one's... Part of the collateral damage, just you, you lose little pieces along the way. Cut your losses, let's just run with the runners. You can't do everything. Yet the one matters as much as the 99. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In order that we might not cause them to stumble, Jesus had said earlier about the tax collectors, you see, Jesus himself was concerned not to cause others to stumble. How we behave has consequences. And you really, really don't want to be the cause of stumbling for one of these little ones who believes in Jesus. In Christian ministry, what matters most is not a league table of ministry, you know, 
preaching greatness or theological greatness. It's that not one of these little ones should perish. And no matter how clever or gifted or connected you are, that will not be your priority if you are pursuing your own greatness. So if you understand these words of the Lord Jesus, it will revolutionise your life and it will revolutionise your ministry. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious love of the Lord Jesus that, that we, without anything to plead, have been brought into that sheepfold. And we thank you for our brothers and sisters, for the ones the world might cast off as worthless, but who are in your eyes so very precious. And we ask for that work of your spirit in us so that we might never, ever be a cause of stumbling for any of them. Will you give us such a concern that each one of them will make it to the end, that we are prepared to give ourselves sacrificially to them. And all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.